Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. And good evening. And it's another fine day in the Pacific Northwest. And this is the Bose Nose coming to you live from downtown Elmira, Oregon. And uh, today's a free-for-all day again, because uh, last week I had almost a full hour taken up by an interview with Lynn Davenport, a World War II veteran. And I encourage everybody to go back and listen to last week's show. Uh, the first eight minutes is me pontificating about the election, so just skip to about eight minutes in this show, and, and you'll pick up where Lynn comes in. And uh, it's truly the story of the greatest generation. I mean, this is a man who grew up on a small vegetable and tobacco farm in eastern North Carolina, and uh, his, his dad and almost all of his adult male relatives were killed in a truck accident with a train when he was only 11 years old. Uh, right at the start, uh, you know, well, just into the Great Depression, I should say. It was about 1931. And, you know, survived all that. His mom and his his seven, his six siblings, there were seven children in all, uh, she managed to keep them all together in an orphanage, but he was the oldest of the children. And because he was too old, quote, to be in the orphanage, he had to work on the farm that the orphanage ran and milk cows in the morning before he went to school um, because he had to technically uh, and, and did janitorial duties and stuff like that in the evenings uh, to stay in, in the orphanage and was drafted into the Army in 1943 straight after he graduated high school and within months of never having left uh, eastern North Carolina um, or anything, he was suddenly overseas, uh, crossing North Africa by train uh, onto another ship, landing in Naples, moving up to the front, and then fighting um, to cross the Rapido River under Monte Cassino um, shortly thereafter as an 18-year-old kid, and managed to survive all that all the way through the war, um, and then got back you know, used the GI Bill to buy his mother and his siblings a home in Alexandria, Virginia, worked while his other brothers went to college and worked them through college, um, and then eventually got a job with the USDA and spent a full career uh, inspecting fruits and vegetables um, up and down the eastern seaboard. So just, you know, part of that greatest generation. It's a show you ought to listen to. If you want to go back and listen to an archive, um, pick one of my shows. That's one you ought to listen to. I, I wish I could get Lynn to be more descriptive because it would make a great book. But he, you know, I've gotten him past one word answers now where he actually does a little bit of description of what, what happened. But uh, he just is not a very effusive person when it comes to that sort of thing because he doesn't feel like he did anything special in his life. Sort of like the rest of the generation. They just feel like they did what everybody else was doing. And, and they're, you know, the fact that he has a bronze star and a purple heart, he really didn't do anything special. Um, so you want to hear from the greatest generation and understand what makes this country great. Which leads me to the other thing in the news lately. Compare Lynn's experience graduating high school and spending the next couple years fighting in Europe and ending up a first sergeant by the end of the war um, with what's going on in college campuses today and having to have safe rooms and, and puppies and, and other things because Oh my God, the person they wanted didn't win the election. Uh, just, it's amazing how much has changed uh, since, you know, from 1940 to 1943, I guess is when Lynn went in, to today in, in 2016. Um, 
this generation would not have been able to handle World War II. Uh, I just can't imagine it. Uh, there was a time where Lynn actually spent three months straight on the line where they didn't get to replace him, sleeping on the ground, occasionally maybe in a farmhouse, um, eating sea rations, three straight months in the winter time. So just think about that, all you college students that lost an election. Those folks sacrificed so we could have that election today. So, well, it is the Bose No Show, and it is a free-for-all. And I just wanted to tip people off, maybe go back and listen to last week, because I think it was a pretty incredible show. Uh, Lynn's an incredible guy. Piece of living history. But to get in on the conversation today, you just have to dial 646-721-9887, and just press 1, and that lets Robin, my producer, know that you want to get in on the conversation. Or you can email us at talk at krbnradio.net. Um, at any time, even between shows, if you've got a suggestion for a guest or a topic you want me to cover. And uh, we'll cover a lot of stuff, I think, today. But, you know, you can call in on anything I'd like to talk about. You know, we can talk about last week's elections and the subsequent protests. We can talk about tax measures that passed, tax measures that failed here in Oregon. Uh, we can talk about, you know, the the courthouse Lego game that we're playing here in, in Eugene, um, courthouse, city city hall, farmer's market, all that good stuff. We can talk about tobacco bans and parks, um, or we can talk about something that uh, came up yesterday for me, uh, and I, I'd actually been aware of this system for a while, but I got to moderate a panel yesterday at the Association of Oregon County's annual meeting with uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Doug Toomey and uh, Trip Robinson from Intel, Doug Toomey's with U of O, uh, talk about early warning systems for earthquakes. And one of the interesting things is Mexico has had an early warning system in their country for earthquakes for 25 years. And we still don't have one here in the Northwest. So, you know, it, it's just amazing that a country that, you know, we always try and think of as, as you know, behind us technologically or something like that, um, you know, it, it, they're, they're actually way ahead of us when it comes to earthquake safety. In fact, one of the things they did was they played a tape of a uh, earthquake that happened in Mexico where they, they got uh, 71 seconds advance warning of the earthquake um, because it happened uh, far enough away from Mexico City and it had the news reporter actually reporting during the countdown to the shaking to start and then the shaking starting. Um, so it was uh, it was a, a pretty interesting uh, topic that they brought up that and it's not that expensive a system to set up. The total cost for Oregon's portion of it to get enough sensors online and get the uh, the data transmission and everything set up uh, and the software and the programs out there, about $32 million. I've seen school retrofit projects in various school districts cost more than that to seismically uh, enhance schools. Uh, when you think about the fact that the most of the injuries and deaths during an earthquake are from items falling on people or people falling down during the earthquake. Um, if you had that extra time where you could duck and cover and hold and get under a desk and, and get off your feet, your chances of being hurt or, or injured drop greatly. And of course, if you have enough time in advance warning and you're in, say, an unreinforced masonry building, you might actually be able to just get out of the building, depending on the situation. Um, that $32 million could save hundreds of lives, but the, the current um, legislatures basically uh, 
only funding about eight million of that a year. So it's going to take about five years for us to build out that system in Oregon. So you know, you think if the if out of the seventeen billion dollars we're spending in our general lottery fund a year, they would find thirty-two million to try and get this system built out and save you know hundreds of injuries and lives. Uh, particularly knowing we're overdue for that subduction zone earthquake that the New York New Yorker magazine famously uh, expressed that we're going to be all toast here because I'm west of I-5. Um, a little bit hyperbole, but not quite. Uh, but it definitely, uh, you know, was something that, you know, raised a few eyebrows there uh, amongst county commissioners as to why we're taking so long to build this system out. And it's, you know, it's, you know, I don't know if anyone signed up for Amber Alerts. It'd be sort of similar, a, a, an opt-in system where your cell phone, you get an app on your cell phone. Um, they'd know where you're located because of, you know, the cell phone towers or your GPS. And you would get the warning, and the warning would actually give you a countdown to when the ground would start shaking. And you're like, how does that work? How could they know? So... Um, you know, it was it was uh, one of those things where the actual speed of transmitting the signal over the the data cables is faster than the seismic wave travels through the Earth's crust. So it actually beats the uh, the shaking to wherever you are if you're far enough away from the epicenter of the earthquake. So. Depending on how far away the earthquake is, is how many seconds or minutes you might have of warning. Pretty amazing system. So today's a free-for-all day, and we have Andy on the line. Um, and Andy, uh, what do you want to talk about today? Hey. Uh, well, um, Jay, I was just thinking that uh, it's interesting what you mentioned about the uh, earthquake, uh, the earthquake, early warning system not being put in place. And it's not so much just the earthquake system that I'm interested in talking about, but more the the thought processes we could have around the overall patterns that cause or don't cause positive change to occur in aggregate. So um, that's... Can you restate that for me again, Andy? I'm not quite sure I caught all of what you said because I was having a little bit of trouble with my speakers here. Okay. Um, so you mentioned the early warning system. And uh, mm -hmm. basically, there are various sociological as well as cultural, uh, I suppose you could say, as well as uh, structural infrastructure and, and institutional structure reasons why something like your early warning system doesn't get put in place, and they all interconnect in various ways with other structures that influence the outcome in any given timeline. So what's fascinating to me is to discuss what factors are either causing people and populations to get the kinds of advancements in technology and also consciousness that is required for humanity to move forward um, you know, and how, how that plays out. And we can look at maybe different examples because I'm interested in, 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 in getting people's opinions and also trying to ascertain what actually does cause positive change to occur in aggregate. Yeah, it, that is a good question. In fact, it was one of the things um, as I was talking off to the side with, with Dr. Toomey and um, uh about this, and and I and he mentioned to me that Oregon was kind of behind in funding it, and we were trying to decide, you know, why is that something? You know, why isn't Oregon investing as heavily as you know California seems to be investing in their system much faster than Oregon is? And um, it kind of gets down to, you know, what are the what are the barriers in providing that funding, knowing that it's a system that could save lives. Um, it's not a real high cost system. Actually, there's, you know, seismic retrofits can actually cost more, a single building can cost more to retrofit than this entire uh, sensor network system. So uh, we got talking about, is it because there's this perception in, in 
in Salem with the legislature and with the populace in general that funding programs out of um, government funds is this zero-sum game where if we decide we're going to put some money into this early uh, warning system that there's going to be we're going to have to take something away from somebody over over here um, and it's those folks that are going to get it taken away are going to probably be too upset so we're just we'll give them a little bit of money that's not enough to raise any eyebrows and and bring about somebody saying hey why aren't we getting that money or or did you take that away from us um, and that's sort of as I see some of the barriers when you get into to um, trying to, to make one-time investments or um, uh, you know get a new program underway there's there's the the mentality that in order to do that you have to be harming somebody else and there's a lot of special interest in that in all those existing programs particularly in the state mm -hmm. of Oregon the public employees unions so it's kind of that zero-sum mm -hmm. Um, mentality, I think, that you know, is the sociological driver behind, you know, why isn't there positive, you know, why, why isn't there, you know, the recognition of the importance of this system and then a willingness to provide, um, you know, expedited funding versus trying to draw it out over several years. And I think it's the, if we draw it out over several years, it's such a small amount, it won't draw the attention of people that are going to get upset and they didn't get that money. Yes, you've touched on very good issues there because it's diving into the uh, the psyche, the collective psyche of uh, people and how groups uh, interact with institutions and how uh, people inside institutions have vested interests uh, that are not necessarily overtly made known uh, because those vested interests, I think, are very often self-serving uh, due to the nature of the construct around the greater uh, the nation, okay, if we look at the United States, um, they're, they're, it's very much driven uh, on who can get one up on the next group or person, and therefore, because of the debt-based structure of the energy flow, um, people tend to rather, if they can get away with it, look at self-interest first uh, on an exponentially growing scale. So, um, you know, the more the nation goes into debt, the more it perpetuates that kind of mentality throughout the nation, therefore, the more likely politicians are to rather hold back uh, on doing anything that would be beneficial for the whole and rather uh, focus in on what's going to make them look good or what's going to give them more resources to use on whatever it is that's going to assist them. Yeah, there is quite a bit of um, decision-making that's driven by how is this going to either increase my scope of power for the, in the future or how is this going to make me look good so I can keep the power that I that I already have mm -hmm. um, by politicians and, and yep. in that zero-sum thought process that goes on with funding programs and, and progressing ahead with some of this this advanced technology um, that's part of the thinking is is if I give them too much money I'm going to upset some constituency that I haven't thought about. Um, so I'm going to only give them a little bit of money and, and kind of make them happy enough to, to, you know, go on, you know, so I can pat them on the head and send them on their way. And, uh, and I, hopefully I won't upset somebody over here that I, I don't want to upset. And I think that's, you know, part of that. I, I'm trying to maintain my power structure, um, you know, if if you're the the the, the parties that are in control, um, whether it's Washington D.C., Salem, or uh, City Hall, there tends to be quite a bit of of that sort of decision making that that's that's surrounded around um, how do I maintain the power I already have, and then how do I expand that power? Yes, I think it. I think it also has to do with the. Uh, geospatial aspect even, and also the, um, the knowledge base. So, in other words, if you look at California, it's very highly susceptible to earthquakes, so that is a concern for them. And then uh, the other thing is, if you look at the infrastructure that happens to exist, I think uh, California is one of the uh, largest economies, if not the 
fourth largest economy on planet Earth because of Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a highly um, driven vested interest to make sure that California maintains its stability. And therefore, excuse the pun, therefore, it means that um, uh, there would, you know, it would be easier for them to get the funding for that, uh, also because of the tax base. But um, when we look at now, as another example, Oregon, the um, overall perceived value for decision makers of uh, cost of life, unfortunately, drops because um, you know not all areas of Earth are managed equally. So you know, if you have to go and look at something like Bangladesh, for argument's sake, uh, earthquake uh, monitoring is not an issue. It's not something that enters into the mindset even because the, 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 the value of life there is very low. In fact, there's not even any worker compensation or um, concern for uh, worker, uh, as if we look at just workers, uh, worker uh, safety. Uh, there's, for example, the shipyards, the shipbreaking yards. So the, the aspect of human life and value of human life uh, in comparison to the rest of the world also plays a role in whether something gets uh, put into place or not. And also, obviously, the overall risk factor for big industry and decision makers. Um, so, you know, those things, um, I suppose maybe we should get to the solutions for that, for, to, uh, the solutions to the issue or the issues, because earthquake warning is a good example. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting. It, I, you know, that does apply to a certain extent, but then there's, you know, as I look at the earthquake early warning systems, Turkey's got a fully operational system, and I would argue that, mm -hmm. um, particularly seeing I hosted a Turkish exchange student for a year, um, mm -hmm. their valuation of life and and um, they have almost a caste system there, uh, you know, mm -hmm. where there's an underclass that value their life very very low. Um, so it, it's you know, yeah. but they have that earthquake early warning system. Well, it's a very uh, Turkey is a very interesting example because it's a very pivotal place, and it's also a very um, uh, in terms of its geolocation. It's the gateway to the Middle East. It's between various trading groups. So Turkey's uh, you know got other factors, but I mean I think it, yeah it's very important to look at the solutions to the problem as well. But I see what you're saying. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons um, Oregon maybe uh, is not it, it's difficult you know, to, to make the, the, the case for this, you know, investing in the system somewhat is Oregon's uh, earthquake regime isn't as active as California, you know, like the San Francisco or the LA area where they have lots of, of earthquakes and they haven't experienced um, damage as, as large as damaging earthquakes. I mean, we've had a couple in the past, um, Klamath Falls um, and, and uh, uh, what was there was another one we just had one this past summer in marcola um here in lane county but most of them have been fairly small not highly destructive uh no loss of life um, but we have the potential for a devastating nine plus earthquake with the subduction zone here that happens on you know average return period of every 300 years and we're overdue you know the last one was in 1700 and it's you know that's something that it hasn't been experienced in modern time um so that there's there's no um cultural real cultural memory of it here so although california experiences many more earthquakes they're they're of lower um intensity and, and shorter duration we get the uh, subduction zone earthquake they're talking about shaking for um, five minutes, not 10 seconds, at, at a magnitude nine shaking. Um, it's going to be massively destructive, but it hasn't happened for 300 years, so it's really tough to, to get people to put their uh, mind around the fact that they're they're protecting from a, uh, um, a, a, a less frequent but much more damaging um, type of earthquake here in Oregon, whereas mm -hmm. in L.A. and San Francisco, they get much more frequent physically damaging and, and high property value damaging, and there's some injuries and, and, and even some deaths in theirs, but not what we're going to, if we get the subduction, the full subduction zone earthquake, 
um, here in, in Oregon, it's going to be massively uh, destructive. But having the ability to, you know, uh, stop trains, uh, turn off industrial processes, uh, you know, pause operations in an operating room uh, in advance of that, that subduction zone earthquake is going to be, you know, hugely life-saving. Uh, and, and, but, it, you know, well, you know, California sees those earthquakes, you know, much more often, and they're much more in their cultural memory, so it's easier for the end. They do have a much larger um, revenue source to tap in a much larger economy. Oregon's economy is tiny in comparison, um, but it's still, in comparison to the overall spending of the state, this is a small item, but it is, you know, I, it is one of those things where it is, you know, we're not, we're not California. We don't have uh, the port of Oakland, and and uh, we don't have Silicon Valley. We don't have the the Central Oregon, um, I mean Central California, uh, ag systems and and everything else that makes their economy so huge. Um, we have a lot of those things here in Oregon, but it's just on a, such a smaller scale um, that, you know, when the decision makers in the world, you know, think about what are they going to protect first, you know, they, they do a risk assessment and you got that more frequent risk in California with a higher value of infrastructure and, and economic activity versus Oregon with a much lower but, but higher damaging um, earthquake and a much smaller economic um, and infrastructure loss um, comparatively. Uh, but it's interesting, though, the, the analysis of the full subduction zone earthquake actually says it will put the U.S. economy in a recession um, for several years. There's enough economic activity on the West Coast, um, and it, the, the, the damage it will do to the economics um, for uh, a short time and the continuing recovery, they're saying, will actually put the U.S. into a, a couple-year recession. So it's worth yeah. investing in trying to, to limit that damage. Well, um, it's interesting. You've raised a couple of very interesting points in that what you've just said. Uh, you've touched on very, very good points. I like what you've said about cultural memory because that is something that is now getting into the collective um, overall ability for people to be able to make change. And also the knowledge base that people are working from is very important. So, um, you know, I look at this as just a segue into looking at the more core issues. Because if you look at the way that anything works in nature, for example, sacred geometry, or even like let's take a flower let's think of a sunflower you know it starts out in the center and then it blooms and it has petals and all the flowers you, they work like that um, various things like the golden ratio they all start from a central point spiraling outwards and then affecting the surrounding uh, in individual and then you know permutations out of those individual points so um, everything happens in patterns and when we look at people's consciousness and we look at the flow of knowledge and we look at the flow of energy and so forth, um, you can either see economies and areas that are dying as they, as they regress into this pattern moving and, and becoming uh, less uh, prominent and nodes, almost like nodes on a network turning off or turning on, they're turning off. So you look at somewhere like Detroit, it's completely regressed, it's completely gone down back into a death state. It's almost like your seasons, you got you know, summer, spring, and so forth. So spring, summer, winter, autumn, uh, autumn, winter, etc. So everything's happening in cycles. And the idea, I think, for humanity to be able to successfully optimize ourselves and even, be, even unlock some new aspects of our biology, of our external world, the macro, the micro, etc., is to be able to reach a point in each aspect of life where we're overcoming, we're conquering that natural cycle. And we have to do that first in the, in the level of consciousness and then move towards being able to, and when I speak about in aggregate, uh, in collective consciousness, 
be able to work together because most people are in a survival state because we come from a cataclysmic past and everyone is still fighting over resources and therefore we're not reaching a higher level civilization. And I have, what's fascinating to me though is that to be able to connect with people on the network, the social capital, if you could call it that, or the knowledge base that the average person is thinking about is, is not, uh, most people haven't done the research. Like I can hear that you're well researched on topics like when you, when you speak about things like cultural memory, um, uh, it's difficult to connect with people because there is a lack of overall uh, knowledge where people, you find that people are interested in solving problems. You know, your average MIT student is not your average uh, person that's in the workforce. So it, it's fascinating to try and figure out how we can actually connect uh, key individuals to be able to create that spiral effect where they utilize technology to raise other people's consciousness to be able to get that, that beautiful growing sort of what you might call grapevine effect. Um, so I, I sincerely hope that there's some way to be able to solve the problem because the earthquake early warning system is a great example of something that needs to be put in place, but we can look at different aspects that are preventing this. So at the core, for example, you have the monetary system and the education system side by side people not knowing that they need to change the monetary policy to be able to have the resources to be able to get the early warning system to be able to uh, support life. And it's not just the earthquakes uh, support system. You can look at things like hyperbaric oxygen. You can look at um, nutrition from early childhood development right up to older age. You can look at all of these things and they all support life. And they all create more time or better quality of life. Uh, and, and, and they're able to prevent disaster, that those things are not necessarily happening because you're moving at the speed of debt as opposed to the speed of light. If we think of the Enlightenment, when that happened, a lot of knowledge entered into the, into the consciousness of humanity at a rapid pace, and you, you start seeing amazing things happening coming out of the Industrial Revolution, which came out of the Enlightenment. And it's like a, it's like a snowball effect where certain things happen or certain, sort of, sort of certain singularities happen in history where knowledge blossoms into a new time, into a new timeline of technology and knowledge. And so this is fascinating because I believe that there are solutions and we could speak about the solutions to the problem, but you've got to start with the core issues, you know, such as fixing the education system and fixing the monetary system. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to happen on a, on a nationwide or a continental scale. It can actually happen on a state level, but even going in beyond the state level, you can start in smaller cities and so forth where there's many people and actually utilizing technology raise people's awareness and help people to start living differently and therefore you can create things like a hybridized economy once everybody agrees on it you can create a uh, better more decentralized education system once everybody agrees on it and then that gives way to having the resources to be able to implement the various other things that you want to do yeah, and then, and then what's interesting is I I agree with you that we do need to definitely work on on the education system and and you mentioned decentralized, but then you start running into that um, you know the juxtaposition is what what's opposing the changes that you want, and it's those folks that currently have power. Centralized education is one of the ways they maintain their power. And, yes, and, and, but, um, and Sorry to, to, inter Sorry to interject there, but I just have to mention that if you look at the horse and buggy as a great example, the point at which the harnessing of energy, electrical energy for the driving of vehicles, and especially the point at which those vehicles became much more efficient than horse and buggy, the horse and buggy was no longer able to, to be the the standard de facto go-to option for transportation. So anybody selling horse and buggy had to upgrade, had to go to the new system. So now what you need to obviously, and us human beings, what we all need to focus on is staying connected with like-minded people, uh, remediating, re, re, uh, going through iterations of the, the ver various versions, for example, of education, looking at what works, what doesn't work. Same thing with the monetary systems. And there's a, there's a lot of knowledge at the moment to be able to achieve new versions, or I should say new solutions uh, inside the space, especially inside somewhere like the United States, because it is a first world nation. 
So you can actually then create something that other people see working, and if you can network it in a, in a you know in a duplicatable fashion. So just as the Model T Ford became eventually the de facto standard, and then that was improved upon for vehicles, um, you know you can create something that can scale. And uh, once you've created the initial um, pattern, then that can be duplicated. So uh, I think it's very important not to feel disheartened because history has shown again and again and again that once you've built the, the correct system, then everybody else has to rise to that new level once you've created the new technology or once the new technology has been unleashed because it, it becomes a de facto by, by, by sheer obviousness, if I could use that as a word, it becomes obvious that that's the better way to everybody in aggregate. So once it becomes obvious in aggregate, just like with Nikola Tesla, um, excuse, excuse me, not, well, Nikola Tesla was revolutionary, AC current, DC current, but now with the new Tesla cars, named Tesla in honor of Nikola Tesla by Elon Musk, um, everyone's noticing. And now the whole, of, the whole of Norway is going over to electrical cars, default. And when everyone sees how well they function, eventually other nations are going to say it makes absolutely no sense to not have self-driving electrical cars. But uh, it has to be a proven system. And your core issues are probably the most important to focus on. And you have to try to do it in a way that you're gradually easing the technology forward. So just like way back in the day, it was incredibly difficult for Nikola Tesla to get his AC current accepted because it was full of all sorts of big challenges. We can learn from history and start, just like what Elon Musk has done, roll things out in a gradual fashion. If you look at the system and the timeline that he's used, he's really done well. A lot of people thought that he wouldn't be able to release the electric car. I mean, electric cars have been killed before or really not allowed to enter into circulation if we look at the issue of GM and their electric car way back when. So um, if we look at the, uh, the, the rollout strategy, it's about hybridization. So in other words, appeal to people that can afford something or offer a solution to people that are interested first. And maybe it's the enthusiasts. And then you make another version of the system, which is for more people that can afford it. And then eventually you make one that's for everybody. Uh, so, you know, in the case of education, you might focus on homeschoolers initially uh, or, or prestigious uh, neighborhoods and then move into homeschooling um, hubs for people that are in different areas that want an alternative that can kind of afford it and they get by and then eventually everyone goes, but this is so much better and it's more efficient. So I would say never lose heart um, on creating those solutions and definitely keep in touch with people that, um, that can start to put those solutions together. Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, really good advice to, to folks that, you know, it is really easy to get discouraged and, and look at the system and how the system put things down. Um, you know, we've had some great innovations here in Oregon with um, cyber schools to help um, uh -huh. with homeschooling uh, folks and, and uh, Connections Academy, I think, is, is the name of the cyber school. But it's it's amazing how many roadblocks keep getting thrown up in front of Connections Academy about, um, well, you, you, you can't take students, you know, from here or, you know, it just, it's just been, they've tried to do every, the, the existing folks that control the, the centralized system have been trying to do everything they can to, to, to discredit, to put roadblocks in their way, to make it difficult for them. But because it's such a great idea, and has been so successful, um, the parents, you know, find a way to, to use it, even if it's not being accredited by the state, they'll, they'll use that Connections Academy because it's just a really effective way of um, homeschooling for, you know, the parent that doesn't have a, a PhD in, in three different subjects, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and they, they don't, you know, they don't have the knowledge base maybe necessarily to teach particular subjects, you've got this online system that can bring that expertise into your home on your, on your, you know, handheld device or your computer. And actually they have uh, the ability for two-way communication um, with, with Skype and other technologies. Uh, it, it just, it, it will eventually be the way lots of children receive their schooling in the future will be, you know, at home. In, in, a, in a family situation. And it's uh, interesting to me, uh, I had a, um, 
intern, I'm an engineer by trade, and when I was um, back in, in, at, in another job, I had an intern that was out of Oregon State University who was holding a 4.0 in engineering, but he had been homeschooled his entire life. Um, and I watched that intern um, do everything I ever handed to him. He was amazingly capable. Um, but his interactions with the rest of the employees were so mature and grown up because he grew up homeschooled in a situation where he wasn't with just kids his age group. One of the things about mm-hmm. our centralized schools that has gotten wrong is they haven't mixed age groups at all. And and these kids, you know, go to school with with peers that are all their same age. Yeah. They start them all in a group that's the same age and move them up through school yeah. all the same age. And they only learn to relate with people their own age and not how to yeah. interrelate with younger kids, older kids, and adults very well. And these homeschool kids, a lot of times they, they may even have grandparents in the house, so they're relating with, you know, as we used to in, in human culture and most mm-hmm. um, most cultures where you interrelated with all age groups as a, as a child as you were growing up. Older siblings, yes. younger siblings, uh, relatives that were older, grandparents, and, and every, you know, multiple generations, and your socialization was was with all age groups. And then when you became an adult, you were able to deal with all age groups in a much more uh, mature fashion. And I think we've done a disservice to our youth by segregating them by age. Um, and, and it's yeah. one of the well, things we'll have sense. to... Yeah, we'll have to break as a cultural norm. And I think it is changing because there are so many kids nowadays that are being homeschooled. I've got a family next door to me here in Elmira that has eight children that they're homeschooling right now. And Mm -hmm. those are some of the neatest kids you'll ever meet. Um, It's just a whole group of kids that just, you know, they're they're intelligent, they're polite, they're pleasant, uh, they're not in trouble. you know they're they're willing to work for uh, you know what what they want in life. You know if they want a little extra money, they'll they'll do the yard work or whatever else. Unlike you know some kids today that just expect to get an allowance and be handed everything they want. Um, it, it's a it's a different different thing than for that homeschool generation and that school choice um, and letting and putting the control of education in parents' hands. Uh, is a really important thing, but but when you do that, you're taking it away from those that want it, it to be centralized because that allows them to have control and, and causes us to have um, poor education outcomes, which is a barrier to yes. future change and technological advancement and having that um, growth from the center that you described that, that uh, uh, well-functioning society should have to be successful. Um, it, you know, when you when you yes. erode that center by by starting, you know, young adults out into the world with with reading uh, levels that are that are eighth grade or lower, uh, not being able to do basic mathematics or balance a checkbook, yes. um, they're not primed for success. <laughs> sure. Well, I think that um, you know what's important is to look at things in such a way that you have a constant interconnection. So it's almost like with the internet where the way that it works, either through light spectrum over fiber optics or over frequencies using cables, um, you're getting pulses. It's digital. It's on and off. And every time that you connect, we're actually far more uh, advanced than the internet in terms of our own ability to communicate uh, with people in, in, you know, across the whole planet, the network of consciousness is even more advanced, obviously, because, because we hold so much information and we're able to do so many things. But every time we interconnect with someone and what we're doing right now, we're exchanging information. And so uh, this is a positive conversation. And if you can start to pulse that conversation into the different nodes on the network, which are the different individuals that can receive that information and then pass it on again, 
you know, obviously someone of a certain level of education can receive information that other people won't necessarily be able to receive. Uh, it's the same thing with different, different types of computers. You cannot uh, run certain types of software, more advanced new software on old 286, but you can sure run it on a Core i7 Intel processor right now. Um, so that's the same thing in education and being able to interconnect in different nodes. So it's about trying to find those people that you can connect with that can understand what you're saying that can then implement the system, the process. So people that are running the same software or similar software as you, like you could say, okay, you can take an Adobe Photoshop file, you can put it onto a Mac, you can put it onto a PC. Uh, you can actually take it into a Linux box and you can run it on, on a GIMP image, image manipulator. Uh, so those can all do that, but you can't take it back into an Amiga system and run it on there because you're not going to have Photoshop. So yes, you're right. Lots of people have been dumbed down, but the idea is to attempt to bring everyone up to the level of the latest Core i7. And the way to do that is to also get all the rest of the other Core i7 processors lined up, create a processing farm, and then you've got you know something like Bitcoin running, and suddenly you can do anything. And I know it's kind of a strange example that I'm giving, but... I'm saying that once you've got that processing power, you can use that processing power in aggregate, just like we talk about computing power for big data, data storage, we talk about computing power for running uh, Bitcoin mining. Uh, what we're doing here is we're trying to mine consciousness. So by, by creating your network and then constantly, it cycles per second in computing, cycles per day, per week, per month, and the people on your network that you've built, that you're connecting to, then in aggregate, in, 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 in the connected group, not in necessarily in series, but at different times during the timeline that is your life, you're connecting with those people, you're building up a network, and eventually you see the, the end product that you wanted, which is, for example, in graphics, in, graphics, uh, in 3D um, graphics, when they're creating these 3D movies, they have a whole load of, of Linux boxes connected together, and then they all eventually draw the images that are necessary to be able to create the frames, to be able to create the movie. And the same thing goes in consciousness. When we want to construct a new kind of way of doing things and bring things into our loading program, into reality, just like in the matrix, we have to make those constant connections and we have to do the processing work necessary over time to be able to manifest the product. Well, that, that's an interesting way of, of uh, uh, expressing that kind of, you know, going back and forth between computers and actual people and their connections. Because, you know, that's really what, you know, my little internet radio show is all about as a, as an elected cool. official, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reaching out through my little internet radio show here to connect with people. And one of the fortunate things is, you know, all these shows get archived and folks can listen to them at any time afterwards. So it, it, it's out there, you know, it, and, and can be brought up over and over again and, and listened to. So people have a chance to listen to this conversation between the two of us if they want to. And you can, you know, send that out to your friends and a link to this particular show yeah. and say, you know, listen to this conversation. It's, it's, it's a pretty good one. Um, but yeah, I agree. We do need to connect with each other and, and more than just, you know, you know, it's nice to be able to talk voice to voice like this rather than typing in sentences like uh -huh. text messaging or, or emails, because um, at least you can hear my my tone of voice and you and you're you're right. you're getting that much. You know, you're getting about 30 percent of human communication, you know, because you're uh -huh. not only getting, the you know, if you're only getting the words, you're getting about 10 percent. If you're hearing my tone uh -huh. of voice and, and, you know, my my phrasing and expression, you're getting a, a whole bunch, but what you're missing is my facial expressions, my body posture, all the other things that are that are human connections. So really, you know, right. uh, as we try and build your, your supercomputer of, of human consciousness, uh, we need to find ways we can get people to do more face-to-face -face, uh, communications. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, 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 I like to try and, and get out for folks to meet me in person, but you know, it's one of those things that's difficult to um, get people to take time when, when you're available or to actually communicate to people you're going to be in a place at a certain time. Um, but anything so that would be solved. To, you know, that would be solved with the yeah. um, proper allocation of resources because at the moment uh, you've got like a Trojan program running, which is a permit structure that sucks all the resources up into one particular group. 
and you know that's the structure of the uh, debt-based banking system, which is um, you know really quite obvious once you look at the um, the mechanisms of how things actually work in the fractional reserve banking. Uh, but 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 the way to counteract that is to create a community banking system, uh, which allows wealth to stay in a particular area and allow funds to be managed effectively with um, open transparency and at the same time. Um, like sort of proven structured, like what Norway does. I hate uh, the fact that I have to keep going back to Norway and also Iceland is very interesting. But what they've done is they've taken their natural resources, they've capitalized on them and then they run their economy as efficiently as possible. Now they might, uh, some catastrophe could fall upon them, we don't know because these things do happen in the world. But uh, what they're doing is even now focusing on readjusting so that when their oil runs out, uh, from their oil uh, deposits, they can actually focus more on being a technology-based uh, uh, nation, similar to what Silicon Valley is in the United States, so that they continue to have the wealth and the resources available for future generations. So right now in Norway, if if you need to, um, if you if you feel like you you know you're 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 having a bad time in the winter because it's really it, you know too cold and all the rest of it, and you want to take a vacation, you can ask and you can't afford the vacation, you can actually submit a request and go for a vacation, um, apparently. Uh, if you don't like the public transport because it just annoys you being around the other people, you can ask for a vehicle. Most people might not want to drive a vehicle because it's very, um, it's very, uh, it's more efficient maybe to use the public transport, easier, get on, get off, don't have to worry about parking. But now, you know, you can ask and you can request to please give me a vehicle and they, you get given a vehicle. And this is because the amount of resource that is available and the way that it's managed, it exponentially has gone above and beyond what is necessary for the population, the amount of population. So all of these issues of time wouldn't be a problem if you had the correct management of, and it's easier said than done, obviously, but the first thing is to get your hybridized economy going because right now all of your wealth is disappearing into the um, sort of the offshore siphoning. It's it's like it's like when a virus gets into your computer and uses it for processing power and uh, sending spam email to people and uh, using your computer resources for for other purposes that somebody else wants to run, uh, whether it be part of a, a botnet or whatever. So that's now your computer is running slowly. You don't know why. You can't even open your paint program, and it's because 70 or 80 percent of your processor is being used for spamming people <laughs> over the internet for somebody else's uh, scam that they're trying to run. So, so there's a great example of how the money system is working at the moment. And, you know, Kennedy tried to change it. Abraham Lincoln tried to change it. Andrew Jackson tried to a large extent to, to, to stop, to, to, to hold it back as long as possible. Um, you know, and Trump recently has said that there's corporations out there that are causing big problems in trade. He hasn't actually touched on the Federal Reserve issue because it's a major issue. It is literally um, a mind-manipulating control. Bill still has done very good documentaries on this. One of them is called The Money Masters. And uh, there's another guy in Canada that did a documentary called Money as Debt. And, and, and you're moving at the speed of debt, so therefore you don't have time to go and see everybody or to spend with more people because the resources are not available to take care of the other things uh, that could be taken care of with more people, proficient uh, people working in, in areas that you would otherwise have to work in. Yeah, it sounds interesting, uh, you know, and I have my own concerns about fiat currency and the Federal Federal Reserve, but I, I do kind of, uh, you know, I'm not sure I'm ready to go the direction of Norway. I, I have a strong um, commitment to individual liberty and the fact that nobody else should have any claim on my time or, or my treasure um, uh, without me giving it to them freely through either exchange or, or, or my own decision to give it away. Um, yeah, it's not so much. It's not going on in Nor Norway. Would, would, you know, if, you, if you're going to provide somebody a vacation, what resource is being yeah, used to provide that person something. vacation? How do you get it? The vast majority, okay, the taxes are not totally unreasonable. Uh, in Norway, the vast majority of the wealth comes from either the technology sector, investment in other nations with resources coming back, or the oil deposits that they have. So at the moment, they're using the oil deposits, but they're moving to a tech-based economy. 
So the reality is that through helping all of the other nations in the world, they're actually able then through their investments that are sustainable to give the quality of life to their citizens through using their intellect and using their, uh, their foresight. So uh, the, the, the taxes are not such a big issue. Um, in fact, um, I, I'm sure you'll find that overall the, the quality of life beats any kind of taxation that, uh, that might be occurring. But I hear what you're saying in terms of liberty. They still have autonomy, but the vast majority of the resources are coming from the government structure as opposed to taxation. And um, if you look at the... Um, uh, like if you want to go and start a business, it still runs like a normal business. Everybody, you know, taxation is not necessarily a terrible thing, um, as long as as long as it's being used in the right way, is my opinion. And uh, you know, if we could have very little taxation, it would be even better. But it, it, overall, the, the natural resources of a nation um, and innovation should benefit everyone, and that's where things like patents, etc., get into the mix and we have to think about, you know, should patents be held back? Should only one person have a monopoly on an idea? Uh, because at the end of the day, if we can look after everyone, then why not? To a certain extent. I'm not saying that someone shouldn't be rewarded for their ingenuity or for their time or for their work. But should we not have a basic standard of living for people that perhaps can't find work or just didn't have the intellectual capacity for whatever reason? So I think that there needs to be a hybridization between the socialist aspect of Norway and the liberty aspect of the United States. And if that's possible, then I think the world is onto a very good thing. Uh, I would I would agree that uh, if we can find that happy middle, it'll be interesting to see if we can. I, I just have a tendency to, to jump for the liberty side before the, the socialized, socialized side. But I appreciate the, uh, the, the call, Andy. It's been a fascinating right. uh, conversation. Running down on time here on the Bose Nose Show. Okay. Only got only got a couple minutes left, but thank you for calling, Andy. Well, perhaps I'll send you an email. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. So, uh, interesting conversation here on the Bose Nose Show. It is a free-for-all day, and if you want to get in on the conversation like Andy did, you can just call us at 646-721-9887 and just press one and that lets Robin, our call screener, know that you want to get in on the conversation. Um, so you know, we've got about two minutes left. Uh, if you want to give us a quick call, we can get a quick conversation started and maybe we can carry it on in the next show. Uh, in fact, you know, it's one of those things uh, with internet radio, if I run a minute over, they don't, they don't kill me. Uh, so uh, give us a call here if you want to talk. If not, I'll talk about what I want to talk about sometimes, and sometimes that might just be the fact that I've got four standard poodles, and they're the joy of my life. Um, but we won't talk poodles right now. I wanted to jump back for a minute because um, what started this whole conversation with Andy was about well, how do we affect positive change? was earthquake early warning systems in Oregon and trying to get the barriers removed to funding of, of that system because it could save lives. And right now, um, at the rate it's being funded, it's going to take about five years to put in place. Where it would only take about 30 million, actually, we already got 8 million, so it would only take about $24 million more for Oregon to build the system out. A single school. So contact your state legislature and ask them about the early warning system and funding it. Uh, really quick, easy thing they can do, make us all safer. Here in Oregon, one of the greatest places in the world, in Lane County here and in beautiful downtown Elmira, where we've got wonderful weather and we want everybody to come and enjoy themselves uh, but we don't want you to move here no i'm just kidding well we're about wrapping it up for the bose nose show we'll be back next week with another show and hopefully you'll get in on the conversation then just remember uh every wednesday four o'clock coming to you live from downtown it's been the bose nose show Good night.
long delay, long delay, long delay, long delay. 